From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. We're glad that you joined us today. And this month, we are finishing up a series on Romans 5 through 8, which has been called the only thematic treatment of sanctification in the Bible. We've had two podcasts the last two months. The first one, we looked at chapters 5 and 6, and we found that the fruit of the believer's life, with a textual verse in 6.22, is holiness. And that our end result will be glorification, but that God has saved us for the purpose of our bearing the fruit of holiness. And then last month, we looked at chapter 8, the first 17 verses. Chapter 8 is an amazing, important, much-loved chapter in the New Testament. And we saw in chapter 8 that... God's Spirit leads us and indwells us and liberates us. And the title of that message was Living Through the Spirit. And there was so much there in terms of understanding how the Spirit is in us and walks with us and directs our daily living that we spent uh, uh, that whole session looking at the Spirit-led life. Now we're going to finish up by looking at the rest of chapter 8 and then making some comments about chapter 7. When we get to chapter 7, we'll explain why it has been one of the more controversial chapters in the New Testament and why it has such significance when we talk about the practical living out of the holy life. But our textual verse in chapter 8 for this study is Romans 8.37. And this takes us straight to the heart of the message that Paul has been leading up to and now is resoundingly completing at the end of chapter 8. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What a verse. Here is the zenith of Paul's incredible discourse to the Church of Rome. Now, the Church of Rome is not a church as we would probably conceive it, of a single congregation. But it is a series, a group of house churches, some Jewish Christians and some Gentile Christians. And he addresses uh, these churches in the first eight chapters First about justification, chapters 1 through 4. And he recounts the history of the Old Testament because of particularly of the Jewish Christians. And then chapters 5 to 8, where we have been looking, he explains the call to sanctification. We're going to use this incredible verse, 37 in chapter 8 as the outline of our study today, by making the three clauses we find in that verse 
as our three main teaching lessons. The first is we are more than conquerors. That is a description of us in our spiritual walk, in the spirit-led life. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. That first phrase is a forthright acknowledgement of the challenges and messiness of life. We'll see that in just a moment. And then, through him who loved us, a cementing of the real theme of victorious Christian living, which is done by the power of the love of God, which is the central teaching in the book of Romans. So let's begin with more than conquerors. This chapter 8 emerges from a dark and defeated chapter 7 and marks one of the brightest victories in all of the New Testament. The brilliance of God's Holy Spirit illuminates his truth and in turn, in turn illuminates the soul of anyone who will be subject to the power of the Holy Spirit. Here Paul asserts, we are more than conquerors. Now, beginning with verse 18, which is where we left off in the last study, Paul talks about the groaning of creation, awaiting redemption. And then he talks about the groaning of Christians, also awaiting redemption. Now, I would like to read verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. What an amazing and wonderful truth. We could have gone on last week and added to the Spirit indwelling us and liberating us and leading us to this teaching that the Spirit intercedes for us. No wonder we are more than conquerors. Jesus is interceding for us at the throne of God. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us here within us. The Holy Spirit is leading us and liberating us as he indwells us. So we are more than conquerors. I don't know about you, but that excites me. And I want to begin reading at verse 28 through the rest of the chapter so we have a sense of the wonder of this passage. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to the, his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, some folks stumble over the word predestination and foreknew in verse 29, uh, that's another full discussion. But uh, as Arminians, we affirm 
predestination. We simply understand it as it is clearly stated here as God predestining or foreordaining that those who would respond in their hearts to God's prevenient grace, those whom he foreknew would respond, he predestined, called, justified, and glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Wow, talk about wonderful promises. We've heard that in all things, God works for our good and that God is for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This whole passage reminds me of a chorus that was very meaningful to me as I was growing up in the church, actually in the Salvation Army in the Midwest part of the country. I don't think I've heard it sung in at least 40 years, but this chorus says, He saves, he keeps, he satisfies this wonderful friend of mine. He not only saves us, but he keeps us. Isn't it wonderful? The Bible tells us he will keep us from falling and he satisfies us which is why the Spirit-led life can be described as a life where we are more than conquerors. And then the verse ends, someday I'll meet him in the skies, this wonderful friend of mine. And that brings us to the 35th verse with its poignant question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? It's quite a list, isn't it? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quotation from Psalms 44. No, and there we are at our textual verse. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, the question in verse 35 is bringing us to the glorious end of this whole eight chapters of teaching. The question is, who then will separate us from the love of Christ? And as this whole passage ends, Paul says, verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a chapter. The chapter begins with, there is now no condemnation and it ends with, nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
This is the end of the story as God planned it. This is Paul's conclusion after recounting in chapter 8 the description of the spirit-led life of a Christian. John Stott says, Thus the Christian life is essentially life in the spirit, that is to say, a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. I love uh, Lieutenant Colonel Milton Agnew. Actually, I think it's Colonel Milton Agnew, who in his book, More Than Conquerors, we mentioned last month, says this, The subject of chapter 8 is not the forgiveness of sin and justification, but the liberation from the power of sin in the spiritual life of sanctification. As the subject of Romans 3 is God declaring the sinner righteous, so the theme of chapter 8 is God making the believer holy. More than conquerors. What a description and what a blessing. Now, the first part of the verse says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Well, what things is Paul talking about? That's part of the reason that I read through the last 10 or 12 verses of the chapter. Because verse 35 asks the question and lists the things that we're talking about. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Here they are. Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Dear friends, I believe this is a message we need today. John Stott says, Nothing seems, seems stable in our world any longer. Insecurity is written across all human experience. We need to understand that Christian people are not guaranteed immunity to temptation, tribulation, or tragedy, but we are promised victory over them. God's pledge is not that suffering will never afflict us, but that it will never separate us from his love. Now, it's pretty clear in the passage, Dr. Ben Witherington says, Verse 37 makes it evident that Paul expects his listeners to experience many, if not all, of these calamities and to triumph over and through them. One of my favorite early church fathers, those were the early leaders of the church in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, was the bishop of Constantinople named John Chrysostom. In fact, we visited in 1988 the actual podium that he spoke from outside the church in, uh, in, in Constantinople. And uh, I stood behind it and had my picture taken because he was a powerful uh, teacher and leader in the church. What does he say about more than conquerors? He says they did not merely conquer but did so in a wondrous way, so that it might become clear 
that those who plotted against them were at war with God and not just with men. Look how the Jews were at a loss. And then he goes and quotes Acts chapter 4, verse 16, where the Jews said, what are we to do with these men? Now, I don't know if you remember the passage, but it begins in chapter 3, and it's the very first teaching, the very first experience after the church is born at Pentecost. And there are those verses that describe how they met every day and the activities that they engaged in. And then they tell the story of Peter and John healing the lame man at the gate. And throughout chapter 3, Peter preaches. And then chapter 4, here comes trouble. They're arrested. And the Jewish leaders thought they had things under control. But when all was said and done, they threw their hands up and said, look, here are these men. They have been part of this amazing miracle. Here is the man whom they healed. What are we going to do with these men? It's interesting to me that uh, John Chrysostom would say that those who plotted against them appeared to be at war with God, not just with the disciples. More than conquerors. Now, I want to ask a very simple and, I think, rather obvious question. Are we supposed to endure and experience these same kind of struggles? We've heard some of our uh, leading Bible scholars and teachers suggest that we are. But a good question from someone, and I'm kind of drawing on my past as a pastor, from someone might be... uh, Well, Vern, isn't there something very wrong with this whole picture? I thought that if we served the Lord faithfully and true, we'd prosper. Hmm. In fact, one of the indications that we are faithful and true is that we'll prosper and that we'll be protected. If we serve the Lord faithfully and true, we'll feel good, and slide through unscathed. Now, I am touching here upon what one is, is one of the most dangerous teachings currently in the church, and that is what we call at times the prosperity gospel, which is directly contradiction by, contradicted by this entire teaching in Romans chapter 8. In fact, a few years ago when I was teaching in Kenya, I asked the territorial commander, now our national commander, Commissioner Kenneth Hodder, what the greatest challenge was as I was getting ready to teach holiness to 40 officers for about 10 days, what the greatest challenge he faced and the territory was facing and what these officers uh, would be concerned about. Now, I had my own ideas of what he would suggest to me in response. But to my surprise, he said to me, the biggest problem we face is the prosperity gospel. There are itinerant preachers who come around and they draw from the churches in a community and they teach that if you give, you will receive and 
all materially, all materialistically, and we're losing soldiers, and it's becoming a terrible problem. Well, let's go back to the question that I was being asked. That person who was asking the questions may have said to me, truth be told, one of the reasons I'm being so cotton-picking faithful is that I thought it would be my protection. In fact, you're kind of obligated, Lord, to make sure my life goes well as long as I'm serving you. J.B. Phillips, in his book, God, Our Contemporary, says this about that. Frankly, I do not know who started the idea that if men served God and lived their lives to please him, that they will always be protected by specific and constant interruption from pain, suffering, misfortune, or the persecution of evil men. We need to look no further than the life of Jesus himself to see that even the most perfectly lived human life does not automatically secure divine protection from suffering and pain. No, in all these things, the circumstances of life, the challenges, the suffering that we all will face is exactly what Paul means when he says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, in light of that, I want to talk for a few minutes about chapter 7. Chapter 7 is one of the most challenging chapters to interpret in the New Testament, certainly the most challenging in the book of Romans. And the challenge comes primarily because of Paul's description in the first person, using the term I, of the awful struggle. In fact, it's an agonizing soul that's in constant turmoil that we're reading about, particularly from verses 14 to 25. And the question down through the ages has been, is this an unregenerate person? Has Paul stopped and now is he doing a parenthesis and talking about an unbeliever? Or is this the struggle of a Christian? And is he referring to his own Christian life? There's considerable difference of opinion among commentators uh, if you look at the history of the interpretation of chapter 7, the majority of the church fathers, so through the first three to four hundred years of the church, believed that this was an unregenerate man. This is not a Christian, but someone struggling. That changed with Augustine. In fact, Augustine held one position and then changed his position in response to a, a debate he was having with Pelagius. And his position that it was in fact a Christian 
struggling, was picked up through the reformers, and then after the reformers, the pietists, and then uh, our whole tradition, Arminius and Wesley, have reverted back to the position of the early church fathers. Now, to be perfectly honest, we have to say uh, there are two distinct ways to interpret this. Now, we can have doctrinal differences, and that's okay. It's a reality, so we need to understand that it's okay. And there is teaching, in fact, in Paul, in fact, later in Romans, that we should let everyone uh, uh, believe as they, as they should, be convinced and follow the leading uh, that they have in their own life. But this particular decision has incredible ramifications, especially for the matter of holiness. We believe this is a struggle that is not that of a Christian. And we believe that is a misinterpretation. In chapter 7, Paul is describing the sinful nature which is not spiritual and loses constantly the struggle. Listen to some of the verses so that if you don't have your Bible with you, you'll be reminded of what we are referring to. Let me just uh, read, beginning with verse 15. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Then down in verse uh, 21, well, verse 19, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So Paul is talking here about sin being present in this person's life. Part of what makes it such a challenging passage to interpret is that in verse 22, he says, For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war. And so, this is the description of a person in a monumental struggle. We believe that this is Paul contrasting this person, this struggling person, with what he teaches in chapter 8 as the spiritual nature which is the sanctified believer living a life led by the Holy Spirit. You can only believe chapter 7 is describing the struggle of a Christian if you don't believe the truths that we have looked at in chapter 6 and chapter 8. John Stott says the wretched man's cry that's the final verse in chapter uh, 7. Actually, verses 24 and 25, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? John Stott says, "Is it, That man's cry is entirely incompatible with the profile of a Christian in the rest of the New Testament. Now, here's the problem. The description of chapter 7, if you apply it to a Christian incorrectly, creates 
the model of a Christian life as a perfect storm, a life of anguish and struggle, a life in which holiness is impossible. Now, this is an important interpretation in terms of the doctrine of holiness. You'll remember that Reformed or Calvinist teaching on holiness, which comes from Augustine through John Calvin and the Reformers, is that baptism with the Holy Spirit does not cleanse the heart from sin. It is only an empowerment for victorious living and effective witness. William Greathouse points out that when teachers and preachers and pastors say, you cannot be holy until you die, you're going to be in this struggle. You are going to sin every day. My comment on that is that when that happens, we reinforce the wrong teaching that Christians must struggle spiritually. And you deny the truth of Romans 5 to 8, which culminates in our lesson today, that we are in fact more than conquerors through him who loved us. Chapter 7, just to make it very clear, is all about the law. And as Paul goes back and comments, I think it, it's very compelling to think. He begins chapter 7, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law. Chapter 7 is all about the law. And the teaching is that the law is not empowering in terms of sanctification. And this picture is of a legal man. And the contrast is those who are under the law. It's easy to imagine that he may be addressing certain Christians, Jewish Christians who are struggling and find themselves in that place. I love uh, Dr. John Oswald. He was one of my teachers in seminary. And as he's commenting on uh, Paul here, he says that this is a personal testimony of Paul in answer to the suggestion that we're saved by grace but continue the relationship by human effort. He says, in effect, oh no, that won't work. I know, I've been there. If you try to use the law to save yourself, either before or after accepting Christ, you doom yourself to endless frustrations. This is why Dr. Oswald says Paul uses the first person throughout these verses. He's not speaking of his present experience. He's certainly not speaking of the normal Christian experience. To read the chapter in that way is to reduce chapter 6, which we studied, to so much meaningless rhetoric, and it destroys the logic of chapter 8. Rather, he says, when we read it the way I'm proposing here, the argument flows straight from chapter 6 to chapter 8 in clear, logical progression. It's precisely because of Paul's own Jewish experience of trying to please God in his own strength and the frustration that it produced that he speaks with such energy and vividness here. This, he closes his thought, by saying to suggest that Christians 
cannot expect any more of Christ's reality in their lives than that which we find in chapter 7 is a travesty. Yes, it describes a struggle, but it's not the struggle of a Christian. It's the struggle of a person still under law, aware of God speaking to him. Back in 1988, we had the experience of visiting Israel, and we went to the northern border of Israel. And we had lunch in a restaurant overlooking a small kind of demilitarized zone. Now, in 1982, there had been the, the Israeli-Arab War. And in 1986, the border of Lebanon had been uh, shut down. And we were sitting, looking out over about a half-mile strip of land separating the hostile forces. I was surprised that we were brought that close to where uh, war could happen at any moment. Both forces, the Israelis on our side and on the other side, the Lebanese were well-armed with machine guns aimed at their enemies. This was no place to set up residence. I think that's the message of chapter 7. It is an agonizing struggle. It is a perfect storm. What's described makes holiness impossible because it is a zone where the person has not made the decision to follow Christ and is waging the war within him between the gospel and the law. Well, we'll leave it there. I want to uh, admit to you that it's very difficult to interpret these passages and you can go so deep and there are, are 20 centuries of history of interpretation, but it is critical to the understanding of holiness. I believe, in fact, let me say this, that more Christians are diverted from the call to holy living by this incorrect teaching that the Christian life is an agonizing struggle where holiness is not possible than any other teaching. It's simply reinforced I've been in the church, in ministry for almost 50 years. I don't know that I have ever had presented in a sermon or a teaching in all that time, this issue. And yet when I talk to Christians about holiness, so many immediately say, well, I'm like, I'm like the Apostle Paul. I, I do what I don't want to do, and what I, uh, I don't do is what I really want to do. And they quote this chapter 7. And that's because teachers do preach and teach that you cannot be holy and that you're going to struggle. Well, dear friends, the message of Romans 5 to 8 culminating in our text is, no, we are more than conquerors in all these things. 
Now we're going to talk about that last phrase, through him that loved us. This brings the most important teaching to the forefront. Back to the very beginning of Romans, in chapter 1, the first few introductory verses, close out with verse 7, where Paul is listed, uh, everyone to whom he is writing, and then he said, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So he's writing to all who are loved by God and called to be, essentially, holy ones. So he starts out talking about Christians as those who are loved by God. And then, at the end of chapter 8, the two verses after our textual verse that we already read, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have from Romans 1.1 to Romans 8, 38, and 39, bookending this wonderful teaching that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. The primary teaching here is that the love of God is the power at work. If you have your Bible, you might want to take a quick look back at chapter 7, verse 4. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. The thinking and the teaching that we belong to another is powerful. You need not struggle spiritually because you belong to another. This Great chapter 8, as we said, takes us from no condemnation in verse 1 to no separation in verse 39. It takes us out of the utter defeat of chapter 724, O oh, wretched man that I am, to this glorious conquest in verse 37, chapter 8, more than conquerors. Now, Christian love is the highest expression of holy living, for John Wesley, perfect love was the full measure of the sanctified life and was his favorite description of holiness. But Christian love flows two ways. And in our text, we see our love to God and God's love to us. The phrase in verse 28 of, of chapter 8, them that love God, to those who love God, governs the entire section. It identifies those of us who are affected by God's eternal working. It's the key to unlocking God's amazing treasure store. A recognition of this is important to understanding. Verse 28 says that our love to God identifies us with an astounding plan. We know that in all things God works for those who love him. And we talked about what that plan included, that those he foreknew he predestined and called and justified and glorified. Not only does our love to God assure us 
that he has a plan for us, but also of an unassailable protection. As we read on in those verses that I read earlier, 31 to 34, there's protection of defense. If God is for us, who can be against us? So Christian love is our love of God and our love expressed to God. But undergirding that is God's love to us. As you read verses 35 to 39, it's evident that we're able to love God because he calls us in verse 28. You know, John said in 1 John 4, 19, that we're able to love God because he first loved us. This is what Paul has in mind when he declares to us in those verses from 35 on that there are forces that would separate us from the love of God. It's like an antagonistic army, like nothing except, uh, they're alike in nothing except that they're all external and destructive and evil. Observe, they're not suggesting that God would stop loving us. That could never happen. But it's suggesting that they want to, those forces want to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul suggests there are two types of forces in those verses. There are things that are temporal, trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. The things we talked about, which certainly will experience in life. Then there are things eternal. Death, life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height, depth, things which are timeless. These would separate us from the love of God. But are they able? Can they do it? The answer is a clear no. The children of God are more than conquerors and cannot be separated from the love of God through Jesus Christ. Samuel Logan Brengel was a Salvation Army officer. Early in the history of the Salvation Army in the United States, and he was struck in the head one night, a vicious blow by a brick thrown by a ruffian. It almost ended his life. But during the long months of his convalescence, when incapable of rendering any public service, Brengel began to write for the Salvation Army publications, simple articles on the life of wholehearted devotion to God, kept pure and worthy by the grace of his spirit. They made a deep impression. There was a demand for more permanent publication, and the result was his book, Helps to Holiness, which since has been a blessing to thousands of people. As he emerged from convalescence, 18 months later, his wife presented him with the brick, suitably labeled with the words spoken by Joseph of his brothers. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to keep much people alive. This is brought to a fitting climax 
this section of the great epistle of Paul to the Romans on the overcoming of sin within the heart of the child of God. And all these things, even being struck with a brick, even being put in the hospital, I'm thinking of those at this moment struggling with COVID. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I think I would close by just affirming that wonderful chorus I mentioned earlier. What an encouragement. He saves, he keeps, he satisfies this wonderful friend of mine. He lives in us through his spirit. He intercedes for us. Someday I'll meet him in the skies. This wonderful friend of mine. Thank you for joining us. I pray that this lesson has been an encouragement to you. Certainly it is a wonderful uh, truth to affirm over and over again in our lives that we can be, by his strength, more than conquerors. We're looking forward to next month where we hope you'll come and join us again. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts. Thank you.